1: Hi, and welcome to episode 223 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, as usual, is Nathan Gilmore, who's an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how's it going?
2: I'm doing all right. I actually uh, added doctor to my uh, Twitter name uh, when I got back to Georgia because I heard that was the thing to do. you just trying to get my goat? I'm yeah, pretty much.
0: <laughs> Are 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 you are you subtweeting on a podcast?
2: I think I am, yeah. <laughs> he's
1: a, he's always a pioneer. <laughs> Less pioneering is Dr. David Grubbs, who's joining us from Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. David,
0: you know, for someone who is a lesser pioneer, I sure did smell an awful lot of cow manure this weekend.
1: Yes, we've uh, just returned yesterday from our uh, from from the conference at Dort college in northwest iowa uh which, is which we beautiful. gave our first live show uh, yeah uh dort is very nice it just smells like cow manure
0: it, yes it, it does in, in a way Although that it's is not not fault. their fault yeah right right no re- no reflection fault. on them
1: no it's a, it's a very lovely campus we were happy to be invited that live show will air later this month um i think the week of thanksgiving is that what we decided on
2: i believe that's right yeah yeah. So
1: whatever date that is, uh, that's, that's when you'll hear the live show. I thought it went pretty well. Uh, so we'll, uh, you have that to look forward to, I suppose. But today we're talking about Hans-Georg Gadamer, uh, and in particular his essay from, what is it, 1966, The Universality of the Hermeneutical Problem, an essay that is much more interesting than its title, would lead you to believe Gautamer's name has come up more than a few times on this podcast, and Nathan, you and I blogged through his magnum opus, Truth and Method, a few years back, but I think he's still not very well known outside of philosophical and literary circles. So can you tell us who Hans Georg Gautamer was and what position he occupies in 20th century philosophy?
2: Certainly. I mean, this guy uh, definitely is a creature of the 20th century. He was born in 1900. Uh, He became Heidegger's student long about the time that National Socialism was on the rise in Germany. Uh, We should go ahead and note, uh, just in case, you know, people only want to hear about philosophers who are morally pure, that he did, like Heidegger, sign a Declaration of Support for Hitler. Uh, But unlike Heidegger, he very strongly and publicly denounced it later in his life. He said that, um, yeah, I mean, I what I remember reading when I was prepping for the episode is that when he signed it, he basically believed that the nationalism and the lack of, you know, philosophical rigor and the antisemitism especially would be so basically un-German that no Germans would actually ever go along with it. Uh, he said I was wrong about that. Uh, so I mean that was, uh, definitely, uh, a part of his biography he wasn't proud of. Uh, that's later, interesting
1: because you almost never hear him connected to the Nazis the way Heidegger is inevitably connected to the Nazis, and I guess that's just because he he went back on it.
2: That'd be my guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I guess it's you know somewhat analogous to Hannah Arendt's relationship to Heidegger. She was definitely his student, uh, but later on became decidedly anti-national socialist. So uh, there is room for. Renunciation and repentance, apparently, in this world, or at least there was 50 years ago. I don't know. I suppose we'll find out, you know, next time we look on Twitter whether there's any room for it now. Uh, But he then spent a career uh, post war in West Germany, uh, where he was a philosophy professor, predictably enough. Uh, Officially retired in the late 60s, Um, you know, wrote this essay really towards the end of his university career. Uh, but then, in his retirement, started traveling to America and taking on jobs as lecturer every fall semester uh, for about 20 years, and it was during that time that he wrote the book for, for which we know him best, uh, Truth and Method. He wrote that just a shade under a decade after this one. His position in philosophy, uh, people often you know, put him next to Jacques Derrida, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show, uh, as one of the tendencies in continental philosophy that emerges uh, after World War II. So, I mean, you know, once you have, you know, if if you think of Heidegger as, you know, where philosophy goes when national socialism is on the rise, the question remains, where do you go afterwards? And, you know, you've got the Stalinism of Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, you have the the strange, you know, kind of post, uh, post-enlightenment ah, deconstruction of Jacques Derrida. And then you've got uh, Gadamer, which we're going to talk about today, so I won't characterize him too broadly. Uh, Michael, I mean, is there anything in his biography that you'd want to highlight that I left out there?
1: Do you know much about his attitude toward religion? He makes a statement at the very end of the article. Uh, I'm pulling it out here. Uh, genuine speaking which has something to say and hence does not give prearranged signals but rather seeks words through which one reaches the other person is the universal human task but it is a special task for the theologian to whom is commissioned the saying further of a message that stands written. That that piqued my interest. I've never heard him described as a Christian although I think there are certain uh, God friendly attitudes and statements in his writing that I've read.
2: Yeah, I've always thought of him as someone whom Christians could appropriate, uh, but I know almost nothing about his own religious experience. I mean, if he signed off with the National Socialists, I mean, he must not be uh, too keen on, you know, traditional Christian confession. But, uh, again, I mean, you know, later on he denounced that. Uh, But no, I I really don't know anything about his religious life.
0: I mean, given that and, and we'll get into this but it, given the the nods that he he makes to particularly theologically inflected hermeneutics um it, it, he he seems to at least have uh an an eye towards those questions in the essay
2: right yeah he certainly interacts with theologians especially uh schleiermacher who we'll talk about here in a little bit but uh yeah as far as his own personal commitments i, d- I just don't know
1: Well, David, Godmer begins this essay with a claim that I think is pretty difficult to deny. He says that the central question of the modern era is how we can square scientific claims to objectivity with our subjective experience of the world as we encounter it. But before he talks about science, he swerves into talking about art and history. So how do the practices of arts criticism and historiography deal with the tension between subjectivity and objectivity?
0: He he brings these two up: uh, the is, is aesthetic consciousness, um, the the uh, the awareness or the encounter with art, and then uh, a kind of historical consciousness. He brings those up early on in order to frame uh, the reason why the subjective and the obj- subjectivity and objectivity is a more complicated and difficult topic. Um, than scientific discourse often frames it. Uh, in he when he talks about art, you know cer- certainly we can we can discuss art. We can know things about art. We can name it. We can describe its features. But one of the One of the points that he wants to to emphasize is that there is nonetheless a genuine, uh, a a real experience of art and an encounter with art that he says is more than a mere object of free acceptance or rejection. Uh, Is it not true that when a work of art has seized us, it no longer leaves us the freedom to push it away from us once again and to accept or reject it on our own terms? So that um in the case of uh in the case of art it it doesn't make sense for for us to say I view art subjectively or objectively, um because because it's 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 obviously both and um typ- typically you know we'll 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 want to you know talk about how how art makes us feel and so forth. But to say that we are being objectively critical about art is to uh, is to deny what seems to be a, a fundam- the fundamental human experience of art, which is that it seizes us.
1: It's an encounter.
0: Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's one that we are not fully in control of. It is one that um, we don't we do not necessarily choose. Um, and I, I like I like that work of art has seized us. That's a, that's a nice way to say that. The historical consciousness on the other hand, uh, and, and I found this interesting, uh, because, uh, I, I I'm not, uh, I'm not familiar with, uh, the Nietzsche that he cites here. Uh, Nietzsche's essay, The Use and Abuse of History. Um, but the, the particular critique he wants to make here is how our, objectivity when we view history uh, actually makes us, t- uh, sometimes makes us too weak to form a decisive just, uh, judgment about history. Um, our sense of distance from it, our sense of alienation from moments in the past. Uh, he says uh, it, 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 weaken, it, it weakens our will and uh, it, it, it causes a weakness of evaluation. Uh, because it is accustomed to considering things in ever different and changing lights so that it is blinded and incapable of arriving at an opinion of its own regarding the objects that it studies. Um, and the, the the idea that this thing happened in the past and so who am I to judge? On one hand, that's um, that is a kind of just caution in in, Pursuing historical knowledge, on the other hand, if if that sense of objective distance makes you incapable of rendering judgments, uh, Gadamer and then Gadamer attributes this to Nietzsche, um, says that this is this is this is actually a flawed way of encountering history. Um, so art is in some sense too close for uh, clu- too close too close for us to be entirely objective, and history. Uh, sometimes is too distant for us to be properly, I guess, properly subjective to form to form judgments of it. Uh, but I don't know the Nietzsche. What am what am I missing here from from the fact that I don't know that?
1: Well, I don't know the Nietzsche either. I have to admit. Yeah, this but is a I, piece
2: of Nietzsche's I've not read either, so <laughs> we might have to table that one. Mm-hmm.
1: But but I think I think he's going beyond saying that we that history is too distant for us to be objective. I I think he's actually arguing against the notion that our history could be objective. I I think he's saying, I think he's saying that our, our historicizing is always itself historical. Mm, mm -hmm. Remember he talks about, he talks about the, the various books that are written supposedly objective and then 30 years on you read them and can tell, yeah. Oh, well, that's, you know, obviously somebody wrote that in the 30s because it has concerns typical of people in the 30s. So right. any kind of historiography we perform is itself history. And mm-hmm. so we can't be objective in our treatment of the past. All we can do is control our bias. But controlled bias isn't the same thing as objectivity.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. And moreover, I mean, there are things, because Gadamer is such a thoroughly dialectical thinker, that really are objective when we do history. This document really came from this time and this press, Mm -hmm. Uh, this artifact really does have this shape and this function. Mm
0: -hmm. But
2: what he says is to the extent that we do anything interesting with it, then we forsake that objectivity. So what Michael is saying is exactly right. As soon as we start systematizing all of these atomized data into something that is recognizable as history, then we are creating an artifact that is itself historical. So that that dialectic goes round and round and round, right? Uh, And and similarly with art, right? Uh, There is a discipline that we can reasonably call art criticism, uh, but its work also has uh, a character that can be criticized. In other words, we can talk about the forms and the concerns and the emphases and the blind spots of an act of criticism just as easily as we can talk about the work of an artist having concerns, blind spots, anxieties, and so on and so forth. Uh, So what this all has to do with science, I think, is that, I mean, I, you know, to draw kind of both of them together here, any model that we make uh, scientifically, and of course, when people, you know, effing love science or whatever that Facebook group is called, (laughs) they're not talking about actual (laughs) observations of, sensory data there what they're talking about is the models that we create uh, you know those are works of imagination just as much as they are observation but and they can't likewise, they can't
0: ob- they can't effing love tables of numbers
2: uh, can't They can't love could. anything
1: objectively to, to, to love is to have a subjective relationship right uh,
0: and
2: also even to create a, a table of numbers is to decide which variables you're going to highlight while ignoring others no spoilers, no spoilers. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You're getting
1: ahead, you're getting ahead here. I'm Nathan. sorry,
2: I, <laughs> it's hard to isolate parts of this essay, uh, but at any rate, I mean, you know, that's the, I, I, I think that's, you know, where all of this, you know, connects to the scientific criticism, that we're going to discuss later, yes.
0: And, and just, you know, just to say at the, you know, he's absolutely going in all these directions with both art and history. But the, the experiences of those two, the, the sense of being seized by art, or the kind of paralyzing lassitude in the face of our distance from history, um, those two experiences are ones that I think you, you can feel without having been particularly insightful about how that experience worked.
1: Well, and I think that's the point, right? The, the experience, the encounter comes first and and everything else is an abstraction from it. and that abstraction is necessary and good but if it's built on this encounter then it can't be objective in the way we expect things to be objective if we are i don't know scientismists <laughs> sure Gadamer is well known as a practitioner of this discipline called philosophical hermeneutics The title of this essay suggests that he's making a hermeneutical argument in it. So with that in mind, why does he reject the definition given by the most famous hermeneuticist, Friedrich Schleiermacher? Schleiermacher says hermeneutics is, quote, the art of avoiding misunderstanding. Nathan, sort that out for me.
2: Certainly. So Schleiermacher's method uh, largely tries to avoid certain kinds of errors that are prevalent in biblical interpretation in his days. Schleiermacher is, to a great extent, a, a biblical interpreter and a, a theologian. Uh, and, you know, what he wants to do is to isolate, you know, to, to use, I mean, more crass terms than Schleiermacher himself would use, cultural influences uh, that, you know, keep us from seeing what the text itself is doing. Uh, so, I mean, it is a science of trying to, as best as possible to replicate the understanding that would have characterized the author's own moment, and by so doing, avoiding imposing our own uh, concerns and our own questions and so on and so forth on the text itself. Now, once again, Schleiermacher, you know, being the, the dialectical thinker that he is, uh, simply recognizes that when you do hermeneutics... Uh, You are always doing something important, and you're always doing a a valid intellectual deed. However, uh, when you do so, you are yourself a historically contingent being doing those things. And therefore, your own act of interpretation, again, becomes subject to interpretation. Uh, So, I mean, what he wants to do, as far as I can tell here, uh, is to take Schleiermacher and Ben Schleiermacher back on himself. Uh, so that Schleiermacher himself becomes subject to interpretation. And, you know, I mean, you, you can definitely um, see the Heideggerian influence here, right? Uh, you know, uh, to take that stand on one's own being uh, is also to take into account and to confront the thrownness of being. And let me translate those terms here for a second. Uh, anything that you do you have the capacity to do because of very particular historical circumstances. But you also have the responsibility to be one way or another within those circumstances. When you start to think historically, you are expanding that possible, that range of possibilities, but by expanding that range of possibilities, you've only done so by adding more history to your history. Uh, so, you know, Again, I'm, I'm stealing Grubbs' material here. i got to quit doing this. Uh, so, you know, the... <laughs> if I could, you know, to summarize briefly, I mean, it might be too late to do that at this point, uh, but Schleiermacher doesn't go far enough. Schleiermacher says we need to examine the artifact as closely as we can with the imagination of its moment. Gottimer adds to that. Then once we're done with that, we need to examine our own moment In relation to our own moment uh and so on and so forth so that it becomes a process of dialectical unfolding that doesn't have any preset pre-established limits to it uh the way that schleiermacher doesn't really explicitly say but he certainly implies
1: does Gottimer believe in misunderstanding
2: um gosh it seems like he does. I mean, you know, he doesn't say that it's impossible to avoid misunderstandings. He just says that it's not enough. So well, I mean, and he, yeah. And he seems know. to say
0: that you can misunderstand, which means there's 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 there is there is there was something you didn't get.
2: Sure, sure. So hermeneutics remains an important practice. Mm-hmm. It's just that Schleiermacher's model of it doesn't go far enough.
1: I love the section in this essay and it's it's during the Schleiermarker part where he says that even the I-thou relationship is an abstraction because your experience of the text is not you reading the text it's this singular entity you reading the text does that make sense?
0: what is the deep common accord that every misunderstanding presupposes on page 7? He he seems to say that there's there's some there, it's it's not just that misunderstanding is too small a category to describe the hermeneutic difficulties, but that there also seems to be some kind of very real connection between those who are misunderstanding one another.
2: Right. I took that, uh, David, just to be a, a grammatical point. I mean, the the du in German is the familiar second person, so I mean, you know, to say ich und du assumes that the do is you know either your children or your one friend in the world or someone you know uh substantially close to you as a human being it's it's to say that your lives are shared in a way that um isn't present for every object in the world or even every other human being in the world so i mean the i I think what he's getting at there is that even with a um with the caution to you know treat the text on its own terms, that is already to assume that you and the text are sharing this uh, interlaced and very overlapping world with the text. Does that does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, it, it it just seemed kind of a you know to to say that there's this deep common accord and to immediately go into I and Thou, which I associate with, um,
1: Martin Buber.
0: Yeah, and something that edges over into mysticism. Um you know, I was I was wondering what direction he was taking that.
2: Michael, what do you got on this Cause I
1: <laughs> Well, I'm interested in your your claim of mysticism as the opposite of objectivity because I I I don't know that I there, there's certainly something mystical about Martin Buber. But I think Buber can be taken in all sorts of directions that are not, strictly speaking, mystical. I I really think that that notion of encounter is the the center of Gadamer's aesthetics and maybe the center of his philosophy altogether. And encounter is not... It's it's mystical, I suppose, if you're looking at it from a purely scientific point of view, because we're talking about something that can't really be quantified and can't really be isolated. Once you, once you, once you encounter a work of art, because that's the, that's the thing in Gotham that interests me the most. Once you encounter a work of art, there's no way to think about it that doesn't involve that encounter. And, and ultimately there's no way to think about yourself that doesn't involve you being the person who had this encounter, even if it's a very, in a very small way. Right. So you see, you see a movie that, that, changes the way you look at things. You're never going to be able to uh, view that movie objectively, and you're also not going to be able to go back to who you were before you saw that movie. Right. Th- this is why I can't talk you out of your love for One Direction. <laughs> 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 to, be, to be less ridiculous, <laughs> I, I, think, I think this is why people get personally offended. <laughs> or what
0: or Tolkien to be serious
1: Right right. But this is why I think people take take attacks on their favorite works of art as personal attacks because they are personal. like you you are who you are in part because of this encounter with Tolkien or one Direction or whoever. And to talk about them is to talk about your relationship with them, even though I don't have any, you know, I don't I don't have any access to your relationship with them. <laughs>
0: Right, right. Does
1: that make sense? And and there's something mystical about that. I agree, but I think I think we lose something when we call it mysticism, because I don't think you have to believe in energy forces or right, anything right. like that to believe in this.
0: Well, I'm I'm not you know I I'm not making an argument that this is mysticism. I'm asking because he's he's using this phrase the, these phrases that if I were to use a phrase uh, about a deep common concord or deep common accord that transcends language and connects us together. Um, I'm aware of how much I'm starting to sound like Obi-Wan Kenobi
1: or Carl Jung
0: or yes. And uh, to, to, which is to say the same thing. Um, yeah,
1: that's true. It's true. <laughs> Fair enough.
0: Um, you know, I, I, am I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm aware of, of how much the, those moves sound like this thing that I would call mysticism. And I, and I don't want I don't want to misunderstand it because this is this is my maiden voyage into Gautamer. Um when he talks about horizons. Your first
1: encounter with him.
0: Yes, yes, and Godimer has seized me, and I am unable to be objective. Um, no, actually, I'm not entirely certain what I know, what 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 I think just yet, because some of the ways he uses language, like when he talks about horizons, which we'll talk about later on, I don't I'm not entirely certain I know what he means by that. And so, yeah, he loves
1: that word horizon. So
0: y'all, y'all are going to have to unpack horizons for me when we get there.
1: I think Gadamer lends himself very easily to mysticism. But I, I, I don't think he has to be... You, I don't think you have to read him in a mystical way.
0: Could, could he be speaking in mystical ways of things that he doesn't necessarily define as mystical in their essence because he, because he sees these things as... The great mystery undergirding communication, being, existence, and so forth.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it could be. That that would that would make sense.
0: hmm I mean, But I
1: mean, there's something mystical about Heidegger, too.
0: Right, or the way people in the 18th century talked about electricity. You know.
1: Uh, you're going to have to explain that more fully, David.
0: Oh, electricity just becomes this big, this big. Overarching metaphor for all kinds of, you know, the, the electricity comes to explain souls and and how God works, and it's it's a, this rife poetic image. And by the time you get to the twentieth and twenty first century, uh, electricity is this tame thing that blue that is the business of blue collar workers.
1: Or, or I mean, maybe the way we talk about computer hard
2: drives now. Mm hmm. Yeah. And that's interesting. I, I, I'm not sure if I, think, I would think of it as analogous with electricity so much as analogous to our talk of logic to where, I mean, you could talk about it in a mathematic, mathematics department as, you know, something that is, you know, strictly a symbol set that's manipulable and so on and so forth. But then we could just as reasonably talk about, you know, the logic of American citizenship or the logic of Christian faithfulness. And, you know, there we're talking about something that is a lot more pervasive and a lot less isolatable, if you will.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, if our judgments about art and history are preceded by our encounters with those things, they're also preceded by a long line of tradition in which those judgments eventually stand. So Grubbs, take a stab. What does Gadamer mean when he uses his favorite word and says that we live in, quote, the great horizon (laughs) of the past?
0: Here we go. The great horizon of the past stretching before us or behind us or in some direction or other. So the whole sentence and the one before it, uh, there are innumerable tasks of historical scholarship that have no relation... Uh, to our own present or the depths of its historical consciousness. but it seems to me there can be no doubt that the great horizon of the past out of which our culture and our, present light, uh, and our present live influences us in everything we want, hope for, or fear in the future. History is only present to us in the light of our futurity. And... Here we have all learned from Heidegger, for he exhibited precisely the primacy of futurity for our possible recollection and retention and for the whole of our history. And I imagine you guys are going to have to unpack that from me. Um, But he makes this gesture saying that this situation is similar in historical consciousness at the beginning of the paragraph. He had just been talking about how our artistic consciousness, and so this is where the artistic and then the language of horizons, Michael. This is where those two kind of come together. He talks about how our sense of what is classical, what will be enduring, I guess what is, what is high quality in art. Um, uh, when we talk about that, we are speaking of, of what has already preformed our possibility for aesthetic judgment. There are no purely formal criteria that can claim to judge and sanction the, ref- the formative level simply on the basis of its artistic virtuosity. Rather, our sensitive spiritual existence is an aesthetic resonance chamber that resonates with the voices that are constantly reaching us, preceding all explicit, explicit aesthetic judgment. So those two images, he talks about the, the great horizon of the past, which I find to be a puzzling metaphor. But before that, he seems to be speaking of something similar when he talks about a resonance chamber, that, um, that our sense of what is beautiful, especially what will be Enduringly beautiful, what others will find beautiful and in long term, um, what has artistic merit, uh, in in I I guess a, a wider way, that that that's not some kind of instinct in our soul that we're just all born with, right? You know, we don't all just sort of pop out the womb out the womb saying, "Ah, Doric columns, how pleasing." Um, (laughs) but instead that there's this, um, inside of us, there is this chamber echoing with voices of what others have said. And, uh, that, that is at the back of our judgments. Um, right,
1: right. And, And not just, not just what others have said, but also what you have prev what has previously resonated with you right. so wh- when you when you hear your one direction song and love it it's because you've previously loved Sync, the backstreet boys and new kids on the
2: block right
0: precisely you you're you, you you, working it today michael you you have you you are failing you 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 are unfailingly accounting for all of my aesthetic judgments that is exactly what is resonating deep in my soul <laughs> But how does the Heidegger come into it? And could somebody say some more about Horizons, please? Because I still don't quite get that.
2: Yeah, where Heidegger comes into it is that for Heidegger, uh, our actual human existence is always open to the next moment. The next moment does not have a definite shape yet, and we are responsible for it. And I mean, his word that I... You know, it might sound like you borrowed it from Michael Farmer, but I have a hunch the influence goes the other way, is the guilt <laughs> for the moment to come. No, uh, I think he got that from me. I, I think he might have. I think he might have. Interesting. Um, and so the idea that uh, history only makes sense within the context of futurity means this, that whenever we tell uh, a historical account, we can rightly criticize it for being teleological. So we tell the story so that everything tidily leads to me. But even when we break away from that, uh, we end up telling the story as some mixture of history as it leads up to me and history as it differs from me. And that's not necessarily a, a fault in the system. That's just the necessary structure of the person telling the history. So you know, the, the person, the historian, let's call this person, uh, who exists necessarily as someone who confronts the open moment, looks back on the history as people who analogously were living into moments that were likewise open. So, I mean, it's that structure of temporality, as Heidegger calls it, uh, which is not the same as time, because time is simply the passage of things. Temporality is the structure by which Every moment for the human being is open in front of the human being. So in order to tell that story, you have to assume that structure for the previous historical actors just as you assume it for yourself. So, uh, Michael, I, I feel like now I'm looping around. I mean, what, what, how would you uh, add to that or retell it or what what, what you going to do with it?
1: Well, I think that great horizon of the past, if you think about how horizons work, they always appear to be reachable, but they never are. So I Mm -hmm. I could say that you were prepared for One Direction by New Kids or by uh, Backstreet Boys, but you were prepared for Backstreet Boys by the New Kids on the Block, and you could you could just keep stretching back as far as you could possibly go, and you'd never reach that horizon.
0: The monkeys uh, would be in there somewhere.
1: Right. I mean, and obviously, with obviously, you're you're reaching into some sort of prehistorical consciousness here because it's not just about you. I mean, you your your taste goes back personally to I don't know what year you were born, David, uh, but it goes back to that year. Yeah, there you go. It goes back to 1978. But the 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 things that make up your taste the elements that make up your taste go much further back than that because you've in some sense inherited them and that's why the word tradition is so important here you're you're given to you're given to pre-like this or that based on what what the the people in the various traditions you stand in have liked does that make sense
0: Yeah, no, absolutely And then
2: on top of that, Michael, uh, you know, temporally, certainly the past is a great horizon in that we don't reach it, but also in terms of historiography, it is a horizon that we never reach because as soon as we get done telling the story of a historical moment, right, a moment in the past, then our telling of it becomes subject to retelling so that we're now interpreting the event not only as different from us but also different from the way that we used to tell it and then we become different from the way that we were different from the way that we used to tell it when we were different and the past is still different from that (laughs) and so on and so forth so i mean
1: interpretation never ends yeah
2: i mean so i mean just in case people think that we're positing some sort of aristotelian eternal universe we're not i mean what we're talking about is precisely what michael just said that the practice of interpretation because it's always a recursive act uh it does stand as a horizon it's something that recedes each time we do an act of interpretation
1: and because we've mentioned t.s Eliot approximately 500 times in the last five days <laughs> I, I think it's probably worth thinking about his essay tradition and the individual talent which says something not dissimilar it says that every every poet approaches every poem with the entire weight of the tradition behind him and every poem subtly changes that tradition and you know great poems change it less subtly but everything everything you write comes out of a tradition and feeds back into the tradition so that you're never you're never standing alone there's never a single thing that needs to be interpreted objectively in its own light it's always connected with everything else and every time you interpret it as nathan says you're just adding more accretion onto the top of it
2: right and when you say that I am just interpreting this on its own terms then that act of saying I'm interpreting it on its own terms becomes part of the history of interpretation right
0: (laughs) there's
1: something to be said here about Sola Scriptura or maybe against Sola Scriptura but I don't want to say it today so uh, maybe some other time
0: Um, I do want want to point out something though this this is absolutely something we're going to take up again so now it's my chance to Maybe spoil things. Um, Gadamer doesn't pre- doesn't present that that issue of, of 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 horizons and the situatedness of our of our understandings as a reason to therefore say, and this is why making sense of things is only going to I- end up in in a hopelessness.
1: No, I don't think there's anything hopeless about this at all.
0: Right. So, so before you get to this point in your, in your listening, um, dear listener, and, and, and have sort of thrown up your hands and said, oh, according to Gautamer, we are doomed, <laughs> um, keep listening.
1: Well, let's move on. About halfway through the essay, Gautamer makes the wonderfully provocative statement that, quote, it is not so much our judgments as it is our prejudices that constitute our being. Nathan, we all bristle when we read that sentence, I think. Uh, why is that? And why do we maybe need to rethink our prejudices about prejudice?
0: Nice.
2: Uh, well, first of all, I mean, you know, uh, I think it's because we were all made to read uh, Jane Austen in high school and we... Uh, no, that's not it. Um, You know, our misgivings about prejudice, you know, come from its contemporary American usage. Uh, It is basically synonymous with bigotry, which is something that we should all avoid. And sometimes it even gets uh, conflated with racism, which is a very particular kind of bigotry, which in turn is a very particular kind of prejudice. So it's it's a matter of synecdoche or metonymy or whatever 50-cent college word you want to use for that. uh, Because, you know... Racism and white nationalism become basically synonymous with prejudice. We don't much like it now Gottimer is is interested in a much broader notion of prejudices Wherein some prejudices can be better than others uh, And that prejudice as a structure uh, Is simply the nature of human existence, right? So I'll read a, a sentence here from page nine prejudices are the biases of our openness to the world They are simply conditions whereby we experience something, whereby what we encounter says something to us. This formulation certainly does not mean that we are enclosed within a wall of prejudices and only let through the narrow portals, those things that can produce a past saying, nothing new will be said here. Instead, we welcome just that guest who promises something new to our curiosity. And that's where the quote ends. Um, So, I mean, you know in order to learn something, we have to have, you know, some context in which the learning can happen. In order to have our minds changed, we have to have a mind in the first place. That's what prejudice is. Uh, It is the condition by which you can expand your thinking. It's the condition by which you can be corrected. It's the condition by which you can repent of a sin, even. Uh, And so, you know, the I think the, the prejudice against prejudice, if you will, uh, comes from a too narrow notion of it uh, that, uh, rightly enough, I think, uh, has come down to us, you know, through a, a very American linguistic tradition. Uh, what Gadamer interested in here is the, the structure of prejudice rather than particular instances of it. So uh, it is simply the, the condition of human experience whereby... In order to change our mind, a mind has to be there in the first place. Um, very very closely connected with
1: tradition in that sense.
2: Say more about that, Michael.
1: Yeah, I mean, prejudice is the way that tradition expresses itself in our judgments, I suspect. I mean, you you operate within a tradition. As, as we've suggested, tradition is preforming you to encounter things right um so prejudice prejudice would be the the sorts of things that you're preformed to encounter your your preformed attitudes toward those things and they can be changed right your prejudices shift over time you you may at one point have been accustomed to thinking that um, atonal music is not beautiful, but if you listen to enough Messian, for example, you may start to develop a taste or a prejudice for atonal music.
2: Mm-hmm. And so they're, so... Not,
1: they're not hard and fast, and they're not, they're not necessarily nasty, uh, but they are, as you say, the, the precondition of our thought, our judgment.
2: Right, and just so people playing Christian Humanist Bingo can fill in their whole card today... Uh, you know the, this is the condition by which you can tell the story in McIntyre's terms that before I thought this but now I think this uh, which is really I mean the the nature of education it's the nature of learning and then you know I mean if you think of you know Richard Weaver's notion of tradition uh, you know tradition is simply the name that we have for the fact that reasoning did not begin with me uh, what we what is prejudice for me is a judgment arrived at by some generation before me or even by a friend before me or even just another human community before me, that opens up the possibility for changing one's mind and thereby leaving to some other human being a new prejudice with which that person must interact at some other point.
0: And and it means that uh, just because you have a, a sense of something or a taste for something and do not know how to account for that yourself th- that doesn't necessarily mean that you should discard it because um, I, I, I think sometimes that mistake can be had too well I, I have this sort of gut level instinct about this issue and yet I can't pop the hood on it and explain why Therefore, it must not be well-founded. Um, but,
1: yeah, I mean, that that's the sort of thing that the drive for objectivity would demand you do, right?
0: Right, but it, it would essentially say that, it would ins- insist that every single person reinvents society from the ground up for themselves.
2: And also, just on a more <laughs> local and snarky level, it would demand an objective account for your hunch that you should be objective.
0: Is fair, is good. Um, And without those prejudices, you have no artistic encounters. Um,
1: Yeah, because you can barely recognize it as art.
0: Right. Like, I I don't look at, I don't know, I I, I don't look at the Mona Lisa and say, hmm, what are the rational things going on in this painting that having assessed and cataloged them will then allow me to reach the logical conclusion that this ought to be aesthetically pleasing? Right. That's not an encounter with art.
2: Right. And even prior to that, you don't have to be told what lies inside the frame is the art, mm-hmm. whereas the paint on the wall to the left and the right of the frame, <laughs> you shouldn't attend to as carefully. Right.
1: Right. Or you're if you're listening, to go back to David's favorite musical group, if you're listening to One Direction in the car, you, you distinguish between the music and the road noise.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which may be harder to do if you're listening to, you know, I don't know, Brian Eno or something.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, but I mean, that's precisely what makes, you know, very experimental art forms interesting is because they pull into question precisely those boundaries between the work of art and the surrounding non-work of art. And, you know, if if that's being done intentionally and with some kind of intellectual aim, it can be really fascinating in ways that... Uh, it wouldn't be if you just, you know, mistook the mm-hmm. wall just 36 inches to the left of the painting for the painting itself.
0: Oh, I, I, this this happened years ago, but the, I remember reading the article. It was uh, a, a piece of art that uh, a museum had apparently paid just hundreds of thousands or millions for. I don't remember the number, but it was huge. And janitors threw it away because they thought it was a dirty drop cloth. Tremendous. So one of these yeah. days,
1: one of these days, we'll have to read Benjamin's work of art in the age of its mechanical reproducibility, and talk about the aura of the work of art. But I think we got to move on for now. Um, and in fact, we've arrived at the million-dollar question: What does science have in common with aesthetics, history, and all these other squishy disciplines? David, in what sense is the scientist not as objective as she imagines herself to be?
0: Oh my, this is a chunky section. Uh, but I'm going to boil it down to the one big example that he gives of this.
1: Does boiling get rid of chunks, David? I'm I'm not a, I'm not the chef you are. I'm afraid
0: it does if they're potatoes. <laughs> so he talks about statistics. It seems as if statistics ought to be the purest form, right? Just the
2: facts, ma'am.
0: Yeah, just the facts. Here's a seri- Here is a table of numbers. We got to be
2: data driven,
0: right? Right. Um, but he says what uh, uh, statistics provide for us a useful example of how the hermeneutical dimension encompasses the entire procedure of science. The successes of modern si- of the modern sciences rest on the fact that other possibilities for questioning are concealed by abstraction. It comes out clearly with the statistics for the anticipatory character of the questions statistics answer make it particularly suitable for propaganda and the point of propaganda is to so sway judgment as to preclude judgment thus what is established by statistics seems to be a language of facts but which questions these facts answer and which facts would begin to speak if other questions were asked are hermeneutical questions. Only hermeneutical inquiry would legitimate the meaning of those facts, and thus the consequences that follow from them. So his point is that the, the hermeneutical issue, and, and this is something that he pursues um, a, a, a bit later on, um, the hermeneutical issue here is what questions do those, st- what questions were asked to generate the statistics, what questions were asked to interpret the statistics and could b- could other questions have been asked? The statistics don't ask their own questions; they are not produced out of nothing. Um, they are produced by an inquiry that has a, that has lying um, underneath it. And he says, presuppositions uh, of which some are known, and then the what remain uh, the the others remain half in the dark. <laughs> So, uh, the, 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 the presuppositions disguise themselves um, because they are producing what seems to be very concrete knowledge. Um, but that, that the very apparent concreteness of that knowledge disguises the, uh, the tenuous contingency upon which those numbers are even produced in the first place
1: right which i mean is something to keep in mind especially when you hear people talk about um metrics and what, what is the term i'm trying to figure out algorithms mm-hmm. as if yes. as if the data that algorithms gave you was completely objective just because a computer happened to run the formula the i mean the algorithms were created by a human being who is necessarily interpreting the world around her right and so I mean the the algorithms are just as debased and stained as all other human knowledge or to put it more positively just as grounded in individual encounters with the world as the rest of human knowledge
0: Was it the was it the Chronicle of Higher Ed that published an article um within when the last couple months about digital humanities and the I-
1: I remember that article, but I don't remember who published it
0: yeah and 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 that was essentially you know that was that was one of the critiques is you know your 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 algorithms and your computer evaluations of these texts this so called distant reading is only as good as the programmers' um, imaginations to construct the algorithms um so so what seem what what is presented as a a reading without a human agent isn't.
1: Well, and this is this is why I also worry about our technological future where tech entrepreneurs are making what amounts to ethical decisions for us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the, the self-driving car will make a decision who to run over. If, if, if it's faced with the trolley problem, it will make a decision. But that decision wasn't made by the car. Mm-hmm. The decision was made by some programmer who decided that Utilitarianism is true.
0: Yeah, I mean, how do you make a self-driving car three three laws safe in the real world? You know, like especially when so much of the the you know Asimov's exploration of you know the ethics of robots uh, is there to demonstrate what kinds of quandaries you can get into. You know, the ethics of the machine is is only as good as the ethics of the of its creator. And probably not even, and, and, and probably not even that good.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And to take a sidestep from the ethical, I mean, even just from an epistemological standpoint, uh, you know, I mean, I I think that the, well, I mean the, the way I always phrase it to my own students is that reality only answers the questions you're capable of posing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean,
1: that that leads us into the next point, Nathan, mm -hmm. do you want to go ahead and talk about imagination yeah. While, while you've got this?
2: Yeah, why not? Why not? So he turns the corner here, uh, you know, when talking about, you know, the, the questions that we pose to reality and the answers we, that we get. And he notes that, and I'm going to use some, some Thomas Kuhn vocabulary here, but I think it's, it's relevant. Uh, Thomas Kuhn's, you know, book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, talks about normal science and talks about revolutionary science. And that's where we get the term paradigm shift, if you've heard that over overused phrase. And for Kuhn, what scientists, you know, in their labs, in their field studies, in their astronomical observations normally do is simply to work within normal frameworks, ask normal questions, continue to accumulate data points so that you can refine and, um, you know, more or less sustain the inquiry that we already know how to do. But every once in a while, and there's no way to predict when it's going to come along, uh, there are people who, because of, you know, anomalies within the system, start to pose entirely different questions. And he calls that the scientific revolution. Well, what Gadamer talks about here that is an analogous to that is the notion of imagination. So I'm going to read from uh, page 12 of the essay here. Uh, quote it is imagination that is the decisive function of the scholar imagination naturally has a hermeneutical function and serves the sense for what is que- or serves the sense for what is questionable. it serves the ability to expose real productive questions, something in which generally speaking only he who masters all the methods of his science succeeds and quote so you know for for Gautamer, and this is interesting, I I actually read this article after I wrote my essay that I I read over there at the uh, Culture, Criticism, and uh, Christian Mind conference, because I used imagination in a very different sense, but in Gautamer's sense of imagination, imagination is precisely the capacity to pose a new question to reality, Uh, and for him, you know, this is the driver of what Thomas Kuhn later would call, not that much later, uh, would call revolutionary science. Uh, So, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, this notion of scholarship, including scientific scholarship as a genuinely creative endeavor, uh, you know, emerges here in continental philosophy, even as it uh, emerges in philosophy of science with structure of scientific revolutions. And, you know, in both cases, uh, what's going on here is that there is definitely a place, and I I want to keep emphasizing this dialectical character, there is a place for careful observation, careful measurement, uh, careful attention to the answers that we get by asking the questions that we already know how to answer. If we don't do that, then we have no springboard, so to speak, from which to leap in order to get to the paradigm-shifting question. But, those moments in intellectual history that, you know, constitute the great turns in the narrative, the great moments of revelation to, you know, misappropriate Aristotle for a moment, uh, don't come from continuing to pose the same questions, but from posing new questions. Um, uh, David, what, what else is there to say about imagination here?
0: Uh, you have said everything that I was going to say. Um, but this, uh, I, this emphasis of questions, this emphasis on questions, I think is uh, is incredibly useful to distinguish what he's talking about from the way we, we frequently think of imagination as n- as the ability to um, visualize or conceptualize something something concrete and definite. Where this is, yeah. whereas this is an act of imagination that is precisely pushing us beyond. Um, it, it's it's pushing us towards an object that we know that 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 we are already confessing as we question that we cannot fully visualize or, or uh, conceive of. Um, which I, I I think it's useful to to say there that imagination doesn't mean being able to visualize a better airplane <laughs> or something like that.
1: It's it's among other things the ability to ask whether airplanes are socially beneficial and I'm you know I'm not taking a stand on mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. But it also might might involve asking how we could make an airplane better
0: right right but but it, but it would be the question right You wouldn't say that the, sci- the, 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 the the scientific imagination or the philosophical imagination is the ability to kind of immediately conceive of the answers
1: right yeah so it's not the the kind of Hollywood version of genius yes that where, that's what, that's what I want to put
0: out this is not this is not some kind of um, crime solution montage from Sherlock.
2: Right. Although it does have, uh, moments in movies. And I mean, I'm, I'm going here largely because I want to troll Danny Anderson cause that's fun. Um, but one of the characters that he hates most in, you know, <laughs> contemporary movies is, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark. And I think of a moment from the original mm-hmm. Iron Man, uh, in which, uh, oh, and I forget the other, the name of the other character, but the guy who eventually becomes, you know, war machine, um, is saying that, you know, the, the instincts of the pilot and the able the ability to assess the situation and react will never be replaced by artificial intelligence. You have to have the pilot in the plane to have your best combat aviation. And uh, Tony Stark, you know, walking up behind them and delivering the line as only Robert Downey Jr. can, uh, says, yeah, but what if we just did the pilot without the plane? And that's the sort of thing that I think, you know, Gautamer has in mind here is that, you know, if you are just thinking about how can we better train the pilot, how can we make the plane more maneuverable, how can we adjust the knobs within this paradigm, I'm going to use Kuhn's word again, Uh, you're still not doing what I think Gautamer has in mind when he says imagination. Imagination is, you know, posing the new question, can we do the aviation without the structure that we call the airplane?
1: This is what people are getting at when they use the banal term critical thinking, right? When people say, oh, well, a college education is about critical thinking. This is what they mean. What they mean is it's about being able to imagine things in, in the Gadamerian sense. It's just that critical thinking has become such a buzzword that nobody thinks about it critically before they say it at all. It's just, you know, a thing we say. It's a way we justify our existence as teachers of the humanities.
2: Right, and because uh Gadamer shares with Heidegger this notion of human existence as historical by its very nature. You know, every innovation is going to be some kind of combination of the great horizon of the past, right? It's simply going to be a combination that either we've forgotten that we knew how to do or that we haven't attempted yet, but the elements are still going to be there in the existence into which we emerge as historically contingent beings. Well,
1: Gadamer ends with a discussion of our immersion in language. He's writing in 1966. This is right as Jacques Derrida is preparing to overthrow structuralism and install post-structuralism in its place. But Gadamer is not a post-structuralist. He's sometimes classed with Paul Ricoeur and Alistair McIntyre as a conservative post-modernist. I, you know, um, I interviewed Merrill Westfall a few years ago for Profiles, and he said, Gautamer is Heidegger's conservative son and Derrida is Heidegger's radical son. And that, that sounds about right to me. On our way out, David, can you tease out the implications of the phrase conservative postmodernist and talk about why Gautamer's project is not Derrida's?
0: Well, I'll start the teasing to use your your verb. And this is this is Gautamer's language. When I said earlier that he's not um, presenting the kind of Uni- when he says the universality of the hermeneutical problem, he he doesn't he doesn't present that in order to make despair. And we can see this from where um, from where the 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 essay ends, and I'm looking especially on um, the bottom of page fifteen and on to sixteen. Um, he says understanding is language bound. But this assertion does not lead us into any kind of linguistic relativism. It is indeed true that we live within a language, but language is not not a system of signals that we send off with the aid of a telegraphic key when we enter the office or transmission, sta- transmission station. That is not speaking, for it does not have the infinity of the act that is linguistically creative and world-experiencing. While we live wholly within a language, the fact that we do so does not constitute linguistic relativism because there is absolutely no captivity within a language, not even within our, our, na- not even within our native language. That way of talking about it, it's uh, that, that yes, we are inside it. Yes, we are in some it, in some sense, it marks our boundaries but it is not captivity it's uh it is our ecosystem so that uh the the right way to the 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 right way to go about it is to recognize that our ecosystem of language has certain uh, certain limitations has certain complexities that we need to account for and some of which we will spend all of our life as beings of language um, never fully mastering but that doesn't mean that we won't be living beings in a world of language communicating with language um, it, it's not a prison um, it's, uh, it's, it's an ecosystem uh, he says precisely through our finitude the particularity of our being which is evident even in the variety of language the infinite dialogue is opened in the direction of the truth that we are and uh, so he he wants to be able to use words like truth in an earnest way um, he wants to be able to to say something about what we are and yes it is an infinite dialogue but it is an infinite dialogue yes it's infinite in the sense that we in our finitude will not completely grasp it but it's a real thing that we take part in um, and so there there's a kind of hopefulness in the way that he talks about uh, an admittedly infinitely complex thing, uh, but you know, we we that is that is not a reason f- he, uh, f- to despair as he presents it.
1: Nathan, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I see that same kind of dynamic playing out in Derrida, uh, but I tend to be a, a conservative Derrida reader. I've been told that anyway. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that the act of deconstruction, you know, assumes that there is always something beyond our current model uh, that is possible to say. Uh, but because, you know, there, there is no outer text, to use uh, Michael Farmer's translation from his uh, recent book. Imagination and idealism in the fiction of John Updike. Um, you know, I think that you know both of those thinkers share that same basic conviction uh, that we are working within a system, but that the system is not closed by definition, but it's open. And I like the the metaphor of language learning that that Gadamer brings in here at the end. Um, he says that we are always limited by our language uh, when it comes to what we can think. And, of course, that's something that he shares with Derrida and with Wittgenstein, for that matter. But whenever we learn a new word, much less a new language, uh, we become more capacious in our in the limits of our thought. Uh, so to learn some Greek means that you are capable of thoughts that you couldn't think before you learned it. To learn the vocabulary of calculus means that you can do things intellectually and mathematically that you couldn't learn, that you couldn't do otherwise, and so on and so forth. So it's a very optimistic view of things, really. Uh, it's one which I share, by the way, and I mean, this is why, uh, you know, when I teach my own students, I mean, whenever I re- revisit Gautamer, uh, I'm reminded that all of these original thoughts that I have about education, I just forgot that I read them in Gadamer. <laughs> uh, I always tell them that, you know, first of all, the world only answers the questions that you pose to it, and second of all, that we learn these things so that we can combine them because it's by reorganizing what we have inherited that we have a new thought. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I it, it it's I'm I'm always amazed at my own forgetfulness when I revisit Gautamer, just how much of Göttermer that I've I've been. Assuming as my own thought, when actually I learned it from him.
1: There's something Gotemarian about that, though.
2: <laughs> I imagine there is.
1: David, have you? You you said earlier you were undecided on Gotemar. What do you think of him here at the end of the episode?
0: I'd like to. I think I would like to read more. Um, he is. Uh, he's one of those figures whose um, whose reputations and associations. I frankly find intimidating. Um I'm I am timid in my encounters with twentieth century philosophy. I don't I don't think I'm ashamed to say that. Um I
1: think you'll I think you'll find he is much more accessible than Heidegger and Derrida in particular.
0: Yeah, and And,
1: and even than Rakor for that matter.
0: Mhm. I mean, certainly, in this little bit that I've read, uh, e- even if even if I was not always, I think, entirely following um, with his with his idiom of expression, that I think he has an attitude towards uh, an attitude towards his subject that that I find attractive. Um, he ends the essay um, by talking about language being a real way in which real persons really touch each other
1: yeah roger Lundeen makes a big deal about that in his book uh beginning with the word the yeah. one i interviewed him about
0: yeah and it, it, you know not not that i'm you know i i certainly did not in any way anticipate what i read in this essay but i remember um asking one time um, a- asking a professor when I was uh, just starting in graduate school and trying to figure out how do I how do I think through this stuff, uh, I asked one time, "What if what if language was a gift and we were meant to stay inside of it?"
1: Oh, you got to read that Lundine book, David.
0: Yeah, and and reading Gautamer, I'm I'm, I'm I, I've I've I feel like you know in, in in some ways, I feel like he he's he's starting answering a question that I asked but never but never answered myself or got an answer for.
1: I highly recommend Gadamer's essay Aesthetics and Hermeneutics, mm-hmm. which is from the same English collection that this essay's from. I, I think you'll enjoy, I teach that in my literary criticism and theory class and I, I think it's just a, a wonderful essay about the the way, the way interpretation actually works with uh with objects of art
0: Mm -hmm. cool
1: well if you've got any comments for us about our treatment of godomar in this episode you can get in touch with us our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com our our website is christianhumanist.org nathan you're up next week what are we talking about
2: Well, uh, at this conference in uh, Sioux Center, Iowa, uh, I told you guys over supper after the conference was over that uh, it got me thinking a lot about Plato's dialogue, The Ion, which deals with not only artists, but also those who interpret art, and whether there's some kind of relationship between that practice and philosophy that we can talk about. Seems like a good one to read, good short little platonic dialogue, so we're talking Plato's Ion next week.
1: Sounds like a plan. Uh, I look forward to talking to you about that next week. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.